Welcome to the Earth Day edition of Place in Power. I'm Mike Livermore. The Place in Power series explores connections between human place-based relationships and the law and politics of environmental governance. The series is co-hosted by the Program on Law, Communities, and the Environment at UVA Law, as well as the Environmental Law Journal and the Environmental Law Forum. We're joined today by two experts in Native American law, natural resources law, and environmental justice. Sarah Krakoff, the Moses Lasky Professor of Law at the University of Colorado, and Gerald Torres, Professor of Environmental Justice at the Yale School of the Environment and Professor of Law at Yale Law School. Our moderator today is John Cannon, the Director of PLACE, and the Blaine T. Phillips Distinguished Professor of Environmental Law at the University of Virginia. The subject of today's conversation are the entangled issues of politics and justice at the intersection of environmental governance and the rights and interests of Native American peoples. I could not think of a better group than we have here today to explore these difficult and important questions. And I'm really looking forward to this conversation. John, I turn it over to you. Okay, thanks very much, Mike, for that introduction. And thanks very much to Gerald and to Sarah for joining us on this, uh, at least in Charlottesville, Virginia, beautiful Earth Day. And I hope the, I know weather conditions vary throughout the country, but I hope uh, it's beautiful in your places as well. So uh, today we were gonna focus on uh, the importance of place and ancestral lands in, um, in American Indian life, and particularly the politics that swirl around uh, the claims of Native Americans with respect to these ancestral lands. So the tribes ceded must, much of their ancestral territory under force or in exchange for land and other rights guaranteed under treaty and other laws. Uh, that land that was ceded was reallocated to white settlers or claimed by the federal government as public lands, including lands now used for wilderness and um, park land, um, to which ironically, Native American access is limited and management roles are limited or non-existent. So let me, let me start with a general question just to get the conversation started and then we can get more specific as we go. But if, if place is a defining element of tribal identity, after so much displacement, how might place identity be reclaimed and protected among, uh, uh, among Native Americans? Sarah. <laughs> yeah, you still have to call on us even after all yeah, these. That's years. right. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for that great introduction. And it's really great to be here with, with you and with Gerald um, and Mike. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful theme for Earth Day. And um, I think one of the many exciting things about this moment um, for Native American tribes and Native people is that I think there's more receptivity to 
the ways that they might answer the question that you just asked, John. And um, I, I, you know, as you said, so many uh, acres, many, many, many acres of um, ancestral tribal lands are now federal public lands. And the opportunity there is because they are public lands, which have um, the various requirements to consult with tribes at a minimum uh, about actions that affect sacred and cultural sites. And then much more broadly, I think the federal government is beginning to think more, much more seriously about the full spectrum of um, collaborative to co-management mm -hmm. um, on public lands. And that is a way for tribes to be involved in um, protection uh, in honoring the places that are historically theirs and interacting with places that many tribes and tribal people still interact with. Um, for all kinds of uses and purposes, um, but that you know they they that that they could become actually part of the stewardship planning, um, I think is one way that there's there's beginning again just beginning and I know we'll talk more about examples soon. But to be that reconnection to place um, when it comes to private lands, uh, there are also some possibilities there. Some tribes are um, and have been since you know the era of self-determination reacquiring some of their ancestral lands, you know, repurchasing them themselves in fee. Uh, so there are options on in both places, and in some respects, the options are greater with regard to public land. So for all the sort of we might think of original sins of displacing. Uh, native people, you know, the upside of those lands remaining public is that today there's that opportunity um, for tribes to come back in and, and be and have a say in a more um, in a in a more formal uh, and meaningful way. Thank you. Um, uh, I, I want to add a, a couple of things and, and, and maybe change the focus just a, a little bit because one of the things um, when you think about the, the relationship of Native people to uh, uh, place uh, and the importance of place in the kind of American imagination, uh, the, the thing that's critical for reevaluation of that place is to recognize that a couple ideas that, that we think of as kind of centrally important in the uh, American imagination, ideas like uh, wilderness, for example, right, were uh, creations, right? They, they created, created here, yet the, the landscape that the original colonists uh, uh, encountered even though they thought of it as a vast and trackless uh, uh, wild land. Uh, and as they moved west, uh, you know, continued uh, uh, um, open and wild space, in fact, was a, uh, occupied and cultivated. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it, it was a, it was a, uh, a human tended landscape and, and just attending to those kinds of realities, I think are important to change the basic American idea about what those spaces mean and who ought to be credited with the kind of formative uh, notions of what the physical uh, nation, the physical country uh, was like. So that 
that in fact, the place that people call America was a place that was cultivated by the people who were here. And the uh, settlers who, who uh, came ought to reflect on the, uh, the human imagination and the human industry that actually produced what they later came to call wilderness. And so, so kind of adjusting the, the whole uh, mindset about what the landscape reflects would be a good first step. And I think Native people have been critical in um, getting people to adjust that, uh, that perspective. The second thing is the, uh, the idea of place being critical um, it, in some ways, the Native people uh, have a connection to place that uh, the settlers, uh, and I, I don't, I'm going to use a term, and I don't mean it to sound pejorative, but it probably will. People will probably take offense, and I apologize in advance. Uh, but but, but the, 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 the sense of place, that is the sense of, of this being, the homeland of the people who were here created a, uh, an ethos that in fact the uh, American romantic tradition of place is to a large measure, measure parasitic on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as we reevaluate kind of the romantic tradition in American uh, uh, humanistic traditions, uh, we ought to reflect on just where homelands and the idea of homelands uh, come from. That's great. And I, I think the, the, particularly the idea of wilderness, which, which has a certain cachet, at least uh, among uh, uh, folks in the environmental movement in the United States, the idea of wilderness as protecting land sort of misses the idea that it also is exclusive in the sense that it excluded Native peoples who were using that land and living on that land in a sustainable way before Europeans showed up. Um, Sarah, well, you know, the, the the if I can say something, right, right, Te- Theodore Roosevelt, who you know is there's he's, he's done much for which he ought to be admired, mm-hmm. right? If you go back and look at his letters and look at his speeches, right, when he like kind of gave birth to the idea uh, of of national parks, right, and wilderness uh, areas. What of course, what he did is is he saw them as places free of people. Mm-hmm. When in fact they weren't, right, and so they needed to be. You know, Mark Spence, uh, his book, um, uh, dispossessing uh, dispossessing wilderness. I think I made. I hope I got the title right. Uh, uh, you know, talks about that whole process and. And, and coming to terms with that process is, um, you know, doesn't make the value of the landscape any less. It just means that we have to have a different relationship to it. And that different relationship is in fact, I think a, a liberating because on some level it's a more honest relationship. Mm-hmm. I, so, I, do you have a rejoinder to all of that? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I would just supplement it because um, it's, I agree, but, and, and, and it's even, um, and it's even worse than Gerald said in the following <laughs> way, uh, not worse, but it's that at the same time as the idea of um, preserving, you know, wild places 
was, you know, getting some traction in uh, non-Native American consciousness, mm -hmm. American Indian law, and Teddy Roosevelt was deeply involved in this too, was uh, in conjunction with public land law, actively divesting Native peoples of those lands, um, right? So the reservation policies, which were sort of roughly 1840s to 1870s, um, focused on concentrating uh, Native people onto smaller patches of land for the purpose of missionizing and converting them. And then it's like, oh, well, he didn't go far enough. Now we actually should carve up their lands. That was the, right. that, so the allotment policies followed um, so that they, they could be converted to little yeoman farmers in the Jeffersonian tradition. And of course, both of those freed up vast amounts of public domain lands, which were open to settlers and otherwise reserved then as public lands that became eventually conservation areas and wilderness. And so it's how, you know, law was part of that machinery, you know, US law um, and, and American Indian law, even while American Indian law was also recognizing treaty rights that tribes have used successfully ever since. So it's a complicated story, but there's, there's the overriding power of the, you know, settler colonial control over that legal machinery that made both, you know, small concentrated areas of native lands and vast open spaces that could be preserved possible. And then I think we have to throw in, if we're throwing Teddy Roosevelt under the bus, we have to throw John Muir under a little too, right? I mean, um, his, his, he, you know, as we know, was the, the, the popularizer of the wilderness ideal and much lauded in environmental and preservationist circles to today and you know like everyone i think people are complicated um the founder of the sierra club was also consorted with well-known eugenicists and racists of the time and and adopted and shared many of those views um you know arguably until toward the end of his life including you know writing some of the most you know heinous things to read to this day about for example the um the indigenous peoples of yosemite his 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 yeah. beloved yosemite so uh, it, it's not that we have to turn everyone into a villain, you know, but, but to reckon with the history of how and why our public lands and national parks and wilderness areas are very complicated places for Native people today. Um, it, we have to understand uh, the story that environmental preservation paid, played in all of that. So just, just elaborating more on your points. And, uh, and I, think, I think Sarah's ex exactly right. And, and you know, the, the, the point she made when she began Right is also part of this, right? Which is, uh, you know, the preservation of public lands, not not in Indian hands, but public lands, right? Create the capacity for us to rethink how those vast expanses ought to be used, ought to be uh, um, regulated, uh, uh, you know, ought to be considered. And you know, it's remember Teddy Roosevelt suffered, you know, two. Uh, you know, kind of tragic reverses, and he retreated to the West to to be restored, right? And so he he looked at the the landscape uh, uh, of of the the Northern Plains as a as a uh, kind of moral and spiritual restorative. Well, you know, he was on to something, right? <laughs> what he was on to is that land had been you know part of the uh, spiritual uh, uh, life. Right of the people who occupied it long before he, uh, you know, purchased the ranch out there and 
and uh, and restored his physical and spiritual uh, health. Um, and you know, the thank God that the public lands were preserved the, to the extent that they are, uh, because it does at least give us something to to work with. I, I think Sarah's, I don't know if it was your last piece, but it was one of the most recent ones you wrote, which is not yet America's best idea, yeah. um, which is, you know, actually does capture that, right? Because if it may not yet be America's best idea, but it has the germ mm -hmm. in it that uh, from which, you know, uh, uh, if I can stay in the spiritual uh, uh, register, uh, salvation might be found. Well, I think I'm going to give Sarah a chance to, to lay out the steps towards salvation. <laughs> because now that we have the enticement before us, we want to, we want to make sure that we know how to get there. But in the meantime, I'm going to um, sort of bring this, bring this to a, a sort of a level of specificity relating to particular controversies or events that are going on or have been going on recently in which uh, tribes have been involved centrally and, and use those to, to hopefully talk about um, the current political power of tribes and their ability to negotiate within the, within the current um, political set, setting of the country. Um, and, and the first is the, the Bears Ears National Monument out in Utah, which is a, a site that has a special significance for a number of different tribes. And it was uh, designated a, a, a national monument by, monument by President Obama. President Trump radically reduced its size, I think, by about 85%. And now the Biden administration is in the process of reviewing that and trying to uh, come to a different uh, resolution. But I guess the, the, the question for, for you both is, um, what is this What is this series of events? And it's not over yet. What does it tell us uh, about the politics of, of federal decisions affecting uh, tribal sites and, and ancestral lands? I should say, if anything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, I think that in the, and, and I want to acknowledge, um, I saw in the chat, Patrick Gonzalez Rogers, who's executive director of the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition right. is, is here. So perhaps in the Q&A, he can also provide um, some updates. But uh, so um, thanks for that note, Patrick. And uh, I think, you know, during the years building up to uh, President Obama's proclamation, um, it was a time of, of optimism and promise um, and a sense that the federal government was willing to see public lands protection in a different way, you know, in, in a way that incorporated equity and justice. And, and this was true of, of, of Obama's other monument proclamations too, not just Bears Ears. You know, there was an attention to um, for example, the Latino community in Los Angeles de designating the San Gabriels, um, and then uh, you know Harriet Tubman's, I believe it was her birthplace. There were a series of monuments that were about um, recognizing you know the darker aspects of our history, including our conservation history to some extent. 
And then uh, Bears Ears was consistent with that, but also in many ways, a, a watershed. The first time a national monument had ever been proposed by tribes, by the five tribes of the coalition. Um, and, and I think for, for, I cannot speak for them obviously, but for, from what I know and have read and have talked to people about, um, it, it sort of felt in many ways like an act of, of reparations um, because because of the dark history we've been talking about, not just getting that connection to that place back, the the, the Bears Ears place, which is extraordinary and very much a lived place if you've been there. It's just breathtaking in all the ways that we think of pristine wilderness as being, but also has signs of life, historic and ongoing all over it. Ancient Puebloan ruins, um, Navajo people still gathering uh, pinyon and firewood up on the Cedar Mesa and, and so on. Um, so I think it was sort of a way of recognizing the history of dispossession that the Antiquities Act, among other statutes, had helped to achieve and, and using that same framework as a way to, you know, sort of reclaim and bring Native people back into their space um, that they had been using continuously, uh, despite the legal boundaries, right? Um, so, and then since then, <laughs> you recounted briefly, right? Uh, uh, Trump, uh, I think of it as repealed and replaced. Um, you can call it shrinking, but when you shrink a monument by 85%, it's hardly the same monument. Mm -hmm. um, bears ears and divided into two much, much smaller portions. Uh, and now we know that the, uh, the Biden administration under Secretary Holland's leadership, which is of course historic, the first ever Native person in the cabinet, first Native woman, Secretary of the Interior, is taking another look. And um, it was one of the campaign promises, in fact, to restore the boundaries of Bears Ears. Um, so we'll see, you know, how, how that turns out, hopefully somewhat shortly. Um, but I think the, it plays into this larger conversation, too, because like, like No Dapple, which I think Gerald's going to talk a little bit more about, right, like the Standing Rock um, protests about Dakota access. I think Bears Ears too ignited the national imagination um, and, and really brought a lot of focus and attention to these um, issues that otherwise I think were, you know, were just obscure to people um, and to people who folks, good, many good meaning folks who would just like to assume that there's something uncomplicated about our history of environmental protection. So, um, I think it was, you know, part of that whole sort of growing movement of our reckoning with our past and, and hopefully turning a corner in some positive ways, at least in terms of public lands uh, policies. Yeah, I, if the, uh, maybe we'll get the people who are there about uh, Bears Ears to, to talk uh, when we get to the, the, the Q&A. But from, you know, from an outsider's perspective, what it looks like was a, um, a, a roadmap for how the interests that are implicated in creating something like uh, the National Monument that Bears Ears represents might be respectfully uh, um, attended to, right? So, so, so that you the, the, the tribal coalition had to resolve the intern whatever internal issues it had, right? The the private stakeholders, the federal stakeholders, the state uh, stakeholders, 
right, all had to uh, uh, be integrated into a process through which uh, the, the president could finally designate the area that became Bears Ears. Um, and I think the, 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 uh, the process that resulted in, in the, the National Monument being, being created is stood at its completion as at least a, a preliminary example of what ought to be done or what might be able to be done um, uh, recognizing that that uh, you know claims of fee ownership and things like that aren't dispositive of the interests of the people in these uh, uh, the, 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 these areas. Um, similarly, what what you know what the uh, Standing Rock uh, did uh, in some ways in some ways it's it's really dramatic, right? Because. You, you could say that at, at, at the at the at the simplest and barest and most naked uh, expression, what it did was to reveal the 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 bankruptcy of the consultative process between the federal government and native people. Uh, um, that okay barely begins to capture the uh, the uh, resulting uh, uh, difficulties, but at root. What it it said was, and this this is why it goes across uh, across uh, uh, administrations. So so, Obama, uh, uh, Trump, Biden. I mean the 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 agencies, right? So the Corps of Engineers, right, has to take seriously, and this is what the resistance there did it, it is to say. It is not a box checking exercise. It is actually an exercise that, and this is where in comparison to Bears, for example, is in stark relief. It's an exercise in which the parties who have an interest, even if it is not a quote ownership interest, have to have a legitimate uh, ability to participate and to meaningfully affect the decision uh, rather than just, you know, say, you know, we met with them, we consulted with them, this is the decision we're gonna take. Um, the other thing was that it, it also internationalized the resistance uh, so that, that uh, um, you know, at Standing Rock, it wasn't just native people from the United States. It was, there were Sami representatives there, there were representatives from Peru uh, it, it, there was a global uh, resistance of native people uh, around issues of water uh, and the the importance of water. And you know, I'm not in the West anymore, but when I was, you know, this it, it, it's it, it, you don't live in the West for very long without thinking about water. Uh, uh, and uh, and you know when. The uh, the slogan that was broadly adopted, which came from Standing Rock, right, which is that water is life, uh, that resonated uh, internationally as well as as domestically. So, you know, they are started, you know, at the beginning suggesting that that native people can can educate the rest of us, right, about our own imagination concerning the place we already inhabit. 
it also can, the, the, the resistance can also educate us about the limitations of things which we think of as sufficient process within the legal uh, uh, arena. Uh, and to, to, to suggest that uh, certainly where you're dealing with, with uh, uh, potentially sovereign claims, right, that, that the process has to reflect the gravity of those claims. Uh, and so I mean, that's, I think uh, that if you want to talk about place and the importance of place, Right, that's important because even though the pipeline wasn't going to be located on native land, right, right, it was just several yards from uh, from uh, land held by the by the tribe and so by the and uh, by the river, which supported the life uh, uh, of the tribe. So, I think you know if you those lessons are important lessons to be learned. So that's a nice example. So Standing Rock and that pipeline. Uh, uh, were not necessarily crossing uh, reservation lands, but they were on lands that the that the tribes were defining as ancestral in some important ways. And the question was the the um, the influence that the tribes could have and and um, work to have in in making that decision. The consultation process that Gerald was talking about. Um, so you have it's, it's nice you have sort of an example of what to do with public lands, but then there's a much there's this much broader issue of how we deal with uh, you know tribal homeland interests on land that's not owned by the federal government, but subject to some sort of federal decision making, right? A permit in the case of the pipeline or permits. Um, and then there's there's the 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 case that. Um, I know Sarah has spent some time with the Grand Canyon, which I think is a great case study um, in which uh, Sarah explores the, the, the ancestral uses of that land by a, a number of tribes um, and the effect of having Grand Canyon now a national park, the effect of that on uh, the ability of tribes to continue those uses and to participate in managing the lands that were, uh, and in some ways still are, importantly, their, their lands. So Sarah, what does, that, what does that process tell us about politics in, uh, in, the, current, in the current setting in, 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 and particularly the, the ability of tribes to have to have a voice in decisions affecting their their places. Yeah, I mean, I think it's at Grand Canyon. It's it's very much a work in progress, um, and um, the reason you know there were a lot of reasons I was uh, motivated to write about Grand Canyon in this way, um, and obviously the overwhelming one was the one that that is the theme of this series um, and this webinar. And that is how um, important place is and how important our preconceptions are to how we understand and, and see a place. And I just was struck by having come to know Grand Canyon, what I, in some, I, I say it I sort of sideways because um, I was living on the Navajo Nation working for legal services 
And so um, I, I do believe that literally my first hike down into the canyon was from um, really, you know, the side in terms of how people think of coming there as tourists up from Flagstaff and seeing the South Rim, right, was, was a side canyon down uh, across Navajo lens down into Marble Canyon, which is sort of the northwestern arm of uh, what is now Grand Canyon National Park. Um, and so that's how I saw it then, which I think is unusual for, you know, someone like me, white person who grew up in New Jersey, right? Like this is part of Indian country. And then, um, and then as I started doing more hiking from various access points, and then run, I've run uh, the Colorado through Grand Canyon four times now um, with different groups and was just struck repeatedly by how little people know about where they are, um, that, that when you're on that river trip, Navajo Nation is to your left. <laughs> um, and its boundary, if you listen to Navajo people, is to the middle of the channel. The Park Service would say maybe a couple hundred yards up. Um, and then you go down and on your right is, is all Southern Paiute land, uh, and including you know, archeological sites and mounds that they know better than any um, Park Service archeologists. And then you know, a couple, a hundred miles or so away are current Kaibab Paiute and other Paiute bands reservations, right? They, it's not just these are ancestral lands, they're still here. <laughs> and then further on down is Havasupai and Wallapai. Um, and of course, Hopi people have uh, the salt trail and sacred salt mines that you float right by. So, you know, that that's sort of how I see the place. And I just um, was, then first of all, curious, like how did this all go from being uh, tribal lands to public lands? So I had wanted to answer that question for myself and tell a legal story, um, but also uh, wanting more folks who go down the river and visit the park to understand um, the story of this place, the history and the ongoing connections. So sorry for that backdrop, but that Right. <laughs> uh, I think is, is part of the project that's ongoing today for the 11 tribes that today have these consultation relationships with Grand Canyon is I think for them to begin to have everyone who visits see that landscape and those stories in that way um, instead of as the blank space on the map, which is sort of the received story. Oh, it was a blank space on the map. It was unmapped until John Wesley Powell uh, went down in his wooden boats um, with his ragtag band of explorers. So upsetting that story uh, and, and, you know, John Wesley Powell has a place in it. He just comes in, you know, many centuries later mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and connecting up the story of possession relationship with the story of dispossession so that now, you know, perhaps optimistically we can get to the story of reconnection. Um, and reintegration so that um, the tribes have more than, as Gerald says, a check the box kind of consultation role with the park, but that it's all seen as an integrated landscape for the tribes, right? Integrated in the sense that they have culture, livelihood, and connections that, you know, bleed right into the protected space of Grand Canyon National Park. Um, and that I, I, I feel like in so many ways that would not only, you know, honor the park, but enhance it um, clearly for native people, but I think for everyone, you know, just to, to have that richer understanding, um, you know, of some of the, the really truly uh, bittersweet aspects of our past 
Um, and yet being able to, again, use public lands as a way to reconcile those, right? To, to some extent make up for them, but also to allow tribes through their own agency to decide you know, what their relationship can and should mean going forward in a way that I think optimistically would be better for all of us. It sounds similar to the, to the idea that Gerald surfaces, surfaced at the beginning, I think, of, of relating sort of our modern ideas about uh, protection of federal lands more directly to traditional uses and, and um, visions of the land. Um, yeah, I want to underline something that, that, that Sarah said, because it's really important. It's really, really important. Right. What she said right, was that the knowledge gained by the perspective that she was proposing actually makes it a richer landscape for everyone. Right. right. So everyone who goes down that river, everyone who goes into that national park, everyone who experiences, pub experiences public land in the way that she suggests has a richer experience. Right. It's it's it, 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 it's it's something that makes your connection to that place right, deeper by virtue of the knowledge that she was suggesting. I mean, I think that's absolutely critically important because it, 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 it what it does is it is it is it eliminates fantasy. Right. And connects it to the real history of the place we inhabit. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, you know, that that's critical. I, I, I remember when I first went to Chaco Canyon and I'm sure Sarah has been to Chaco Canyon. And if you haven't been to Chaco Canyon, the, you, you, the first thing you need to do is before you go is help us, you know, people who are organized to prevent the fracking around uh, Chaco Canyon to, to stop that. But when you go into Chaco Canyon, for me, it was like, it was a life-changing experience, right? Because you go there and you realize that this was a trading route that linked South America, the Eastern United States, as far North as Alaska and the Pacific Ocean, right in the middle of the, of the, of the country. And it was on a, a mesas where you can see, I'm, I'm gonna exaggerate, I wanna say thousands of miles, I'm sure that's not true, right? But it feels like it, right? And that history, that history, even though it is, there, it is no longer occupied, but that history makes that part of the world just a, uh, I don't want to sound like a sap, right? but, 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 but it sanctifies it in some ways, right? And not just for the, the, the inhabitants who, who you know, created it, but for those of us who come upon it later, because it connects us to a thousand year old history, older than that, multi-thousand year old history of, uh, uh, of the people who are on the land. And, and then you, you, you start to see the landscape that was on the land. You start to see, you know, Douglas fir timbers that are three foot on a side, right? And then you start to ask questions, well, where did those come from? And you start to see kivas that could seat 300 people, right? You, you say, well, you know, the, who were those people, right? Why did this leave? And then it just opens doors yeah. that make the experience of the place just richer. So that, I thought, you know, Sarah's points earlier are just really, really important. 
that need to be underlined. So that was just underlining. That's great. So, so this is such a great conversation, and I'm I'm having to 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 uh, put aside some of the, the lesser questions I had because it, this time is being so beautifully filled. But I I did want to get in this one before we go to Q and A from the uh, from those watching, and that is we we hear a lot now about uh, the, the environmental justice movement is regaining strength. Um, and being taken very seriously in governmental circles and environmental uh, organization circles. Um, and I'm wondering how, how do the tribes fit within the environmental justice narrative? And I think some of the things we've already talked about um, are, are part of the answer, but I'm interested in sort of a, a, a broader sense from you about the role of the tribes in the environmental justice movement uh, going forward. Um, I think the tribes have, have had a role, but maybe not as central a role. Can we imagine that role expanding or changing uh, shape in, in the years to come? Well, you know, I'd like Sarah actually to, to, to talk about this because her, her experience with the various tribes in the, in the, in the, in the Grand Canyon is so, is, is so rich. But, but th there's a, a couple of things that I want to say. First, first of all, there has always been an active native presence in the environmental justice movement, mm -hmm. um, and it, it, it remains so. One of the things to take just a really pedestrian point, right, is to take the Justice 40 initiative that the president has articulated and to ask, you know, just in, in really you know, explicit terms, what percentage of that is going to go to native people? Right to address the environmental uh, 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 insults that that native people have had to to uh, to uh, endure. So there's going to have to be some metrics that tie it directly to to um, uh, uh, native programs. So that's that's one. Two, the the uh, capacity of, of of indigenous nations to manage the resources that they control uh, is is absolutely going to be. Uh, 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 critical. So you have to look at the, the various legal mechanisms that inhibit the uh, uh, control of those resources by Native people and to ask how could we change them to make a more robust uh, capacity in, in nations. When you think about the role that, that Indigenous nations are going to play in the process of the, uh, the, the green energy transformation, well, we need to start having conversations with the, the nations that, that have a lot of uh, renewable energy resources that are not currently being used and to ask, you know, how do we uh, contribute to the development of that? We also have to ask, and this goes to a, a, a slightly different point, but, but uh, to the extent that climate uh, is directly affecting the res climate change is directly affecting the resources of tribes and here I'm thinking of the the the, the tribes that uh, that that uh, shellfish tribes and, and fishing tribes um, those those injuries are happening now right and we need to start calculating those and asking what the what would an adequate response look like mm -hmm. so uh, uh, you know, the the, the uh, indigenous presence in the environmental justice movement has always been there. It's, uh, it raises slightly different questions than the kind of the conventional uh, right. uh, approach, but uh, um, 
they will nonetheless be uh, uh, tied not just to kind of distributive justice questions, uh, but uh, questions of, uh, well, I'm writing something right now called contributive justice. So uh, <laughs> uh, contributive justice questions as well. And, and I, I can talk about that later if you want. So. Well, I like that contributive justice, right? Sarah, did you? Well, I think Gerald covered so many things well, and I know folks have questions. I, I guess I'll just, just say very quickly, um, and it's just maybe a sort of reframing of, of what Gerald said. Uh, and that is that I think historically, tribes and Native people you know, have been at the core of the environmental justice movement. Um, and, and at the same time, there are you know, commonalities and differences that are, are crucial and important and have always been there and I think are just hopefully emerging in a, in a way that makes them more visible and better known now. And those are so, on one hand, you know, tribes and native people in the US and globally have been, you know, on the receiving end of uh, disparate impacts from environmental harms and uh, also uh, on the short end of the stick in terms of receiving environmental privileges, right? So. That, that is sort of a quick summary of, of our, all of environmental justice issues, right? Less of the goods from environmental protection, including preservation, more of the harms from industrialization and development. Um, and then the, the sort of different piece for native peoples um, worldwide and in particular in the US because of our legal framework is um, tribal self-determination and sovereignty. And that, you know, Gerald again alluded to this um, or more than alluded to this, but the tribes as nations, as sovereign governments, um, part of the justice issue for them is the right and ability to control their own um, natural resources and environment. And, and, and that doesn't always accord with what um, non-native environmentalists want to see. You know, there can be divergences there, um, but you know, I think for tribes and, and native people, it's not a true tribal environmental justice issue um, unless it, it has both of those elements to it, right? So it doesn't just mean jumping on board someone else's campaign about environmental protection if um, there's also an aspect of it that could undermine tribes' own ability to make decisions about their resources and their landscapes. Um, so, uh, just to kind of maybe clarify, uh, put a fine point on it. Great. So we uh, let me uh, pick up some some of the questions here. So we had a, a, a comment from Pat Gonzalez Rogers, uh, who uh, had a thought about uh, environmental justice and tribes. Pat, if you if you we can't we can't patch you in to ask directly, but if you could pose that on the Q and A, we can pick it up. Uh, when we have that. Um, meantime, uh, there was a question about uh, the Dakota pipeline. My understanding is that the Dakota pipeline crossed unceded land under the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty. What was the mechanism by which it was privatized or seized? More technical question, but these tech questions come up in these cases a lot. 
I mean, the uh, and, and Sarah should, should certainly weigh in on this because the 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 you know the the, the question of uh, unceded land, right, um, is a is a complicated question, largely because of the the um, oh god, I don't know, I don't the kind of the relentless westward pressure that pushed tribes into uh, um, reservations. Uh, and, and essentially declared some land that uh, tribes claim uh, is that not not tribal land. Uh, so so that the uh, the the process, and I don't know the specific process uh, for this Standing Rock, but the 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 process is is a familiar one actually in American history, which is which is that. Um, the the tribes were uh, forced, uh, and, and force is not too strong a word, right? uh, to yield claims to, to territory uh, um, in ways that many of us, I think, today, were they uh, done uh, in a non-tribal context, would be viewed as unjust and illegal. Uh, uh, um, and and, the, and the, the, the tribal nations, you know, Continue to insist on 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 the uh, the continued legitimacy of the claims they have to those territories, and uh, yeah, yeah, I could and I'd absolutely, and just to fill in a few of the details um, that Gerald's describing, um, the eighteen fifty one treaty was sort of what in Indian law was sort of a peace and friendship treaty, like okay, this is great Dakota nation territory, white people can pass through, um, but without like the, the, set, the land sessions that became more common in the treaties sort of after roughly 1860. And then in 1868 was the Treaty of Fort Laramie. That was the first shrinkage, <laughs> but still, you know, recognized basically, you know, a vast amount of, of, of the great Dakota nation's traditional territory as theirs. Mm -hmm. um, then the next stage was the reservation policy period. And it was after, you know, gold was discovered in the Black Hills. Um, and, you know, as Gerald said, you know, the, the, the tribes were more or less coerced into abandoning um, the 1868 treaty for these much smaller reservation boundaries that are now, you know, the, the federally recognized tribes with their reservations in North and South Dakota, and to some extent in Nebraska and other places. So, it's that it, it is the workings of Indian law in conjunction with discovery of resources, arriving of settlers um, that is part of that legal story. And, and, the, and the Sioux tribes of course did have sued um, <laughs> to get the Black Hills back uh, and they, they won. Uh, and, and, but, but another piece of the Indian law story is part of the Indian Claims Commission was to interpret that statute not to allow tribes to get their land back through that mechanism but instead to get money damages right. um and so the 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 unseated 1851 lands you know were gradually uh eliminated um from standing rocks reservation just as other lands were eliminated for all the 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 tribes in the dakotas and elsewhere um through that sort of, you know, barely legal story of uh, basically, you know, re re continually breaching treaty agreements.
um, and often with the threat of very violent force. I mean, the, you, can, you see that you see this, you know, in, in the in the in the Pueblo Lands Acts. You see that, you know, kind of where there is the there is the veneer of legality, right? That is that is the the thinnest uh, uh, scrim to hide the illegality that's going on behind it. Um, we're we're uh, we're privileged to be joined uh, ad hoc by Pat Gonzalez Rogers of the Bears Ears Coalition. Uh, and he's going he's gonna to put a question directly to you guys relating to environmental justice or anything else he wants to. Oh, first of all, thanks, everyone. Um, um, very gracious of you to let me call off the conversation for a second. <laughs> um, I will say it is refreshing and both instructive to um, listen to these um, really sage kinds of um, thoughts and um, insights from really oracles and seers of Indian law and policy, Gerald and Sarah. So I, I wanna thank you for that. And I think that's a common feeling to anyone listening to this conversation. Um, th these are more like essential thoughts than um, a question. First, I wanted to say, you know, the Bears Ears Coalition um, really at its primacy is the exercise of sovereignty. The reason why um, this matriculation is near the finish line is because of the political status of tribes. And when people talk to me, what is the, the one thing you do? I say, I allow the tribes to exercise their sovereignty um, for good and bad. Um, and that, it, it, to me, simplifies the task. Now that said, um, what I do wanna say is, you know, relative to um, environmental social justice, Tribes stand above other conservation groups and nonprofits. They're um, first political entities. Um, and so they're in the, the general classification, but they're really uh, distinctly above um, everyone. But you know what I would say to that is um, during the last five years, we've received no funding. We've had to go to the foundational com um, community despite the foundation um, generosity. Um, and so there's a real question here. Um, let's take climate change, for example. There's about $3 billion on the street, um, mostly given to large conservation groups. BIPOC conservation groups, including tribal entities, receive 1%. That's roughly 25 to 30 million. My organization is 2.5 million annual, which means we already take up 10% of the budget. So there's a huge, huge kind of inequality in what we're facing, um, tribes, as well as the other communities of color. And the other point that I'll finish is communities of colors and tribes are most impacted by climate change. So they should be at the forefront of decision-making and problem solving, and, but they're subordinated against the status quo of the benevolent conservation community. Pal, okay. that was my um, rubbish for the day. Thank so, you guys. So the gauntlet is thrown. <laughs> um, I, uh, so thank you, thank you very much, Pat. And uh, I know we have a, just a few minutes left and I don't, uh, I, I had one more question and I think we're getting to the question in different um, guises, but, uh, there, there's a there's discussion now about reparations for 
the enslavement of African-Americans. And I'm wondering whether uh, there is a similar conversation going on or that should be going on with respect to Native Americans, uh, given that they were pushed off their ancestral lands and subjected to violence and, and, um, and uh, you know, atrocities of, of immense proportions. Is there, is, there a, uh, is there a reparation movement per se, or, or is that the wrong way to think about this, this corrective measure? I mean, I think that just like picking up on um, Pat's comments that the first, the first people to turn to would be of course, um, native nations themselves uh, to address that question. And I do think that um, both the legal framework and the kind of repair, uh, my guess would be, would be um, different than the framing from within the African-American context. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's because of the unique legal status of tribes as nations, you know, with, with homelands much, much shrunken from what they were, but it just, um, you know, justice looks different for different groups subject to different kinds of injustice. And uh, maybe I'll pick up on one of the, the questions, which I, I, I figured we'd get this. It was interesting, the David Troyer article in the Atlantic which, which used the vocabulary of reparations um, for the suggestion that returning national parks to tribes would be a form of reparation. So that's an example of how different it, it could look, um, right. again, depending on what, um, what that conversation would look like coming from within uh, Native nations and Native communities themselves. And um, I, I thought the article was terrific. It was very well done and I love its provocative um, yeah. proposal. Um, in, in no small part because, it, you know, again, you know, depending on what tribes themselves would argue for and push for, it makes a lot of solutions in between <laughs> that I think the federal government could, could achieve with tribes, you know, consultation, co-management, collaboration uh, seem, you know, much more reasonable, just as any staking out of, um, of a really bold and audacious, uh, and I mean that in a good way, you know, idea makes, makes other solutions on the spectrum seem more achievable. I, I, I second all of that. And I was wondering when we were gonna to get to David's, uh, David's article, because it, it really is a, a, a bold and provocative article. The other thing I, I, I would like to say is, is the, the thing I teach my students every year, right? Uh, um, is that decolonization is not a metaphor. Right, that, that it's commonly used as a metaphor. But if you take it seriously, that means you've got to rethink everything. Um, and so the idea of reparations in some ways is the wrong uh, lens, mm -hmm. um, but it also means you destabilize a lot of things. Um, uh, Linda Smith, a Maori uh, uh, scholar, um, wrote a book called Decolonizing Methodologies which I think you know, everybody in, in, in the academy ought to read. Um, and, and we need to take it seriously, especially from in, in the areas that we, we work and write. So thank you, and thank you for having, well, thank you. having us today. There's so much more we could talk about. This has been such a rich conversation. Uh, it's really a joy to be a part of, and I hope uh, others have, have uh, gotten the same pleasure out of it as well. A great way to spend 
Earth Day with you guys and on this topic. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Sarah.